and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the passing of Colin Powell as both a milestone as well as a metaphor for the death of moderation in the Republican Party, as the party of Lincoln devolves into the party of Trump, abandoning all principle, civility, integrity, and ideals to become a cult in the thrall of a sociopathic conman whose corruption is only exceeded by his incompetence. Joining us to discuss what it will take to restore the GOP to sanity and decency, as well as comment on the life and legacy of Colin Powell, is Jeffrey Caberservice, the Director of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books including Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation, and the destruction of the Republican Party, from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. Then we will look into the nakedly racist, outrageously greedy, and brazenly undemocratic redistricting maps just passed by the Republicans in the Texas legislature, and speak with Lydia Camarillo, who serves as the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. She plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies of the SVREP nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns, and previously served as the national director of the Leadership Development Program for the Mexican American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Then finally, we will speak with Aaron Sherb, a former congressional staffer and currently the director of legislative affairs at Common Cause where he helps craft and gain support for various good governance proposals related to campaign finance reform, voting rights, redistricting reform, and ethics and lobbying reform. He joins us to discuss whether the Democratic politicians in Washington have the survival instinct to recognize that the Republicans don't just want to beat them in future elections, they want to drive them into extinction. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can... Help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Jeffrey Caberservice, who's the Director of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party, From Eisenhower to the Tea Party. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeffrey Caberservice. Nice to be back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Jeffrey. And as a Republican who's concerned about the Trump takeover of the party and the endangered species of the moderate Republican being more, I think, graphically illustrated by the passing of of Colin Powell. Do you feel that way, that he could be kind of emblematic of the last of the moderate Republicans? I wouldn't say he's the very last, but certainly he was among the most significant moderate Republicans to be passing from the scene. Um, and to me, he also represents 
a great might have been for the Republican Party uh, because there was a strong groundswell to have him run uh, as the Republican presidential candidate in 1995. If he had gone into the 1996 election as the Republican nominee, I think there's an excellent chance he would have defeated Bill Clinton and become the first African-American president. And I believe that would have changed the course of the Republican Party uh, significantly and prevented the kind of racist populism that we've seen in the party in recent years. And would it have meant that we wouldn't have had uh, George W. Bush and the Iraq war? You know, uh, it's entirely uh, impossible to predict what might have been. But certainly if we'd had Colin Powell as the uh, president at the time of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, I do believe that Powell would have responded uh, by invading Afghanistan, but not Iraq, um, and that the Afghanistan mission would have been more limited, uh, and therefore we wouldn't have seen the kind of disastrous withdrawal that we've seen most recently. But of course, all this is just speculation. So do you think, though, that it wasn't just Colin Powell, whose record has been blighted by the UN speech that he made on February the 5th of 2003, where he sold the Iraq war to the world community, he was the best possible salesman for it, and that's why they chose him. But did that war, you think, lead to the kind of populism that Donald Trump represents? Because he, uh, he ran against that war and against George W. Bush and the neoconservatives. So is there double jeopardy in that? It just wasn't a blight on, on Powell's record, but on the GOP's record. So uh, Colin Powell, as Secretary of State under President George W. Bush, did go to the United Nations and presented what turned out to be complete or even outright false information about Saddam Hussein's progress toward uh, nuclear and biological weapons in Iraq. Uh, and Colin Powell was always very forthright about how that uh, had haunted him and how that would forever be a blot upon his record. Um, and the United States did, in fact, then go to war upon those false pretenses. And interestingly, the United States went to war in a way that violated every aspect of the Powell Doctrine, uh, as he had come to formulate it in the first Gulf War. Uh, what probably is more accurate is what Colin Powell called the Pottery Barn Doctrine, which is you buy it, you break it. Um, and it's true that uh, the failure of the United States in Iraq was part of what led to bipartisan sentiment against neoconservatism and the whole concept of, quote unquote, endless wars. Um, and Donald Trump was able to campaign as a populist against the Republican establishment, just as much as against the Democrats, on the basis that they had failed uh, to nation build overseas, that the whole concept of nation building was um, mistaken, and also following on the heels of the failure to foresee and mitigate the 2007 to 2008 financial crisis. So there's no question but that Iraq and the failures in Iraq were part of what led to the populist resurgence. And just to be precise, uh, Jeffrey, the actual words of Colin Powell were, you break it, you own it. Uh, yeah, that's that, that was a subsidiary of the Powell doctrine generally. Um, Colin Powell had come to prominence first uh, as one of the first advisors sent in uh, in the Army, U.S. Army during, I believe it was 1963, uh, to Vietnam. And he saw the situation in South Vietnam, understood it to be uh, unstable, understood that the 
uh, coup-prone leadership of the Republic of South Vietnam did not have the support of the people. And further, the United States did not have clear objectives in Vietnam. Uh, it didn't have the support of the U.S. domestic population, and the Army's uh, means of going about its goals were forever changing and limited because the United States declared uh, North Vietnam uh, to be off-limits in its war. So the Powell Doctrine, as it was applied in both um, the deposition of Manuel Noriega in Panama and also in Operation Desert Storm, uh, said that there have to be very clear objectives for why the United States is using military force. Uh, the goals have to be understood by the armed forces. There has to be popular support for this mission. Um, and the mission, when it is carried out, has to be carried out with overwhelming force uh, and decisiveness. And as I said, the Powell Doctrine was very well applied uh, in both of those conflicts that he oversaw uh, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under the first President Bush. But by the time we get to Iraq and the second President Bush, then it's Pottery Barn Doctrine, which is that you go into Iraq uh, without adequate grounds to do so when America's vital national security interests are not apparently at stake, then it's left to you to fix the mess. Um, and you know there are various things where Powell was essentially overruled by the neoconservatives in the George W. Bush administration. For one thing, he thought it was a disaster to have uh, dissolved the Iraqi army and not quickly put it back together again, as he had done in the case of Panama. Um, but there's no doubt that George W. Bush and the people around him, particularly Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, failed to follow uh, Powell's wisdom. And he was really a marginalized figure in many ways within that second Bush administration. And again, I'm speaking with Jeffrey Kaposervis, who is the Director of Political Studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. So, Jeffrey, I've had extensive conversations with Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Powell's Chief of Staff in um, the State Department, and he was with him in those meetings at the CIA and the seventh floor conference room with George Tenet, when Powell was presented with all the evidence before he made that fateful speech before the UN on February the 5th of 2003. And the culpability really is with George Tenet. I mean, I also spoke with Tyler Drumheller, who was the head of the, the Europe desk at the CIA, and he had told Tenet that this character that they based a lot of the evidence that Powell presented to the UN about these mobile bacteriological weapons caravans, etc., was just nonsense, that this character that the intelligence came from, codenamed Curveball, was run by the BND, the German intelligence service, and they had concluded that the guy was a, a complete dissembler and a drunk and delusional. And furthermore... He was a relative of the neocon character that was selling the war, the Iraqi guy, Chalabi, uh, who ended up being an agent of the Iranians all along. So do you think that Tenet, I mean, has gotten away with it? I mean, if Powell's the one that gets blamed for that bad intelligence, the bad intelligence was given to him by the head of the CIA. What choice did Powell have? He was skeptical about it, apparently. He kept probing and saying, this doesn't feel right. But at the end of the day, what choice did he have but to accept evidence from 
the top intelligence officer in the country. And Tenet sort of infamously declared the evidence to be a slam dunk. Um, and it's true. I have heard about that story about Powell and Wilkerson going through the evidence presented to them by the CIA and, and weeding out some of what just seemed obviously ill-sourced. Um, but at the end of the day, Powell was not in a position to do his own intelligence investigation. The nature of government really means that you have to rely on uh, some other agencies that you yourself do not directly control. Um, and yeah, I think it's one of those ironies of history that it was Powell's reputation that suffered for the presentation of this uh, false information rather than Tenet, or at least to a greater extent than Tenet. But of course, that's because Powell was the public face of the administration's case for invading Iraq. And that's partly because Powell was one of the most popular public figures and diplomats in the country, and the Bush administration was relying upon his prestige and credibility to sell their case for Iraq. Um, but it's also the case that Powell wouldn't have been in front of the United Nations if he had not wanted there to be a multinational coalition going to war under United Nations auspices. So it was really his decision to do that because the Bush administration was perfectly happy to go it alone or at most with what ended up being the coalition of the willing. So it was a combination uh, in, in a sort of classically tragical way of some of uh, Powell's best qualities and highest ideals, along with the mendacity of other actors in that administration. So let's move forward to the post-government service, Colin Powell, where he endorsed Barack Obama for president over John McCain in 2008. And my understanding is from Nicole Wallace, who was the top aide to McCain at the time, who was actually dealing with, with Sarah Palin, that Powell was broke with McCain over Palin. And it seems to me that Palin is kind of the stalking horse for this constituency that Trump has brought to the Republican Party that now, you know, with the QAnon types and all of this craziness that now seems to dominate the Republican Party. So to that extent, if that's true, I think he, he detected something that has become a kind of cancer on the party. Oh, I think there's no doubt about that. Um, you know, Colin Powell, in many ways, was a sort of a quintessential American success story. He was raised in the Bronx, uh, the son of working class Jamaican immigrants. Uh, he went to public high school in New York and then to City College of New York. And he was a, a mediocre student at best until he uh, came across the ROTC uh, military training program. And then suddenly he found something at which he uh, enjoyed and excelled. And from there, it was a steady rise up through the ranks. Um, and he kept his political allegiances uh, to himself until he retired from the military in 1993 at which point he said he inclined more toward the Republican Party because of its position on lower taxes, less regulation, its support for the military. But even then he was worried about some of its tendencies toward uh, extremism. And when he declared that he would not run uh, for president in 1995, he said that he hoped to nonetheless have a positive effect by staying in the Republican Party and keeping it true to its Lincoln heritage um, and trying to reduce its uh, tendencies that he saw even in 1995 toward racial grievance. Um, so you actually sort of move up to Barack Obama becoming the candidate for president on the Democratic side. And I think Powell was worried by two things, one of which was, as you say, Sarah Palin's presence as 
John McCain's vice presidential uh, running mate. And he really saw how Palin was uh, bringing this kind of populism into the mainstream of the Republican Party and stoking white rage at the same time. But then also, um, he was very put off by uh, what became birtherism just a few years later. And its leading uh, adherent or salesman, if you want to call it that, Donald Trump. Powell was under no uh, deceptions that birtherism was anything but racism. And uh, Barack Obama, in his uh, salute to Powell, also raised something that Powell had said, which I think stuck with a lot of Americans. He said, you know, the short answer is that Obama is not a secret Muslim. He's a Christian. But the real question is, what if he were? Uh, are, are, are people in the Republican Party trying to say that a Muslim boy or girl can't grow up thinking that he or she wants to become president? That's just not American. So he was aware very early on of the dangers that eventually came to fruition under Donald Trump. And he endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016 and Barack Obama in 2020. I guess towards the end, he must be haunted, though, right, by what's happened to the party. You know, it's interesting that even after endorsing Obama and then Clinton, he remained a Republican until after the January 6th uh, insurrection at the Capitol. And that was the point at which he just resigned. You know, I don't think Colin Powell ever wholly threw in his lot with the Democratic Party. I think there were elements that he saw as going too far. And there were a lot of things that just didn't resonate with him based on his experiences and his background in the military. Uh, but I think there's no question that by 2021, he did see the Republican Party as a significant threat. And he also had a lot of room to tell uh, people in the Republican Party, I told you so. I am sh sure that he was very disappointed that many of his friends on the Republican side uh, in leadership had not spoken out to the extent that they could have about the way that uh, Donald Trump was making the United States an international pariah, as he put it, and the extent to which Trump was simply not qualified and indeed was extremely ill-qualified for the office of the presidency. So at this point, do you think there's any political utility on the part of the hope amongst the vestiges of the Powell Republicans? There's a group called uh, Renew America, led by Miles Taylor, who I interviewed the other day. He's the guy that wrote the anonymous op-eds, and he was the chief of staff to the head of the DHS. So he, he was in Trump's National Security Cabinet meetings, and he's hoping to peel off a number of Powell-like Republicans, not just at the political level, but at the at the electoral level as well. And Biden, I think, picked up something like 7% of disaffected Republicans in 2020. Do you think that's going to be enough to offset the massive voter suppression that's going on? So I've been interested uh, in the genesis of the Renew America movement. Uh, and in fact, I was at some of their early formative meetings before they'd come up with the name. Um, you know, there is a certain amount of discontent among both center-right and even more conservative Republicans about the direction that the party has taken under Trump. Um, and a wish uh, to forestall uh, Trump's threat to our democratic system, just to put it bluntly. Um, and, you know, there is a real danger, not just in voter suppression, but in election nullification that comes from legislation that's been passed in many states around the country that essentially takes the ability to certify an election and election results out of the hands of neutral uh, election officials and puts it into partisan state legislatures. So, you know, we are in a situation where the end of the republic could be within the next three years, which is rather a terrifying prospect. Um, I applaud the efforts of Miles Taylor and uh, 
Christine Todd Whitman, the former Republican governor of New Jersey, who wrote a recent op-ed in the New York Times laying out their rationale for their movement. Uh, note that they're not calling for a third party explicitly as such right now, except in certain conditions where that might be appropriate in keeping power out of the hands of the Trumpists. Uh, Evan McMullen, the leader of Stand Up Republic, has also been very instrumental in uh, the renewers movement. He is actually running for the Senate in Utah right now as an independent candidate. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But there are also people uh, further to, I would say, the right of most of those moderates um, who also think that the third party idea has some utility. Uh, Jonah Goldberg, writing in the dispatch, made a big splash by saying that there need to be conservative third party candidates to act as spoilers for these Trump Republicans uh, in certain critical elections. I don't know. I've been skeptical all along of the potential of third parties. As you know, I think the American system is just biased against them. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I do think that these people's hearts are in the right place and I applaud their efforts to try to at least uh, alert the country and Republicans in particular to the dangers that Trump has imposes to the continuation of our democratic republic. But just in closing then, Jeffrey, I was watching an interview the other day with Michael Gerson, who uh, was a top aide to George W. Bush, and he's absolutely in apoplectic. He's incensed by what's happening and alarmed and said, you know, the only way to stop this terrible destruction of the Republican Party and the divisions that Trump is sowing in this country, which ultimately serve the interests of Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, is for the Trump Republican Party to be defeated. But if they have sufficient voter suppression that they will be able to create a, a one-party state in, in perpetuity, then, frankly, it's too late. So do you think the Democrats have a chance in 2022 and 2024? They seem completely disorganized and feckless, and they don't seem to recognize this freight train barreling towards them. Uh, look, Ian, I'm not a soothsayer, and uh, I don't even have that great a track record of predicting what's going to happen in politics. Um, I think right now my sense is the Democrats are going to get creamed in the 2022 elections. Uh, and that's partly because that's just the history of what happens to the president's party in midterm elections in the first term. But it's also because of the kind of democratic disarray uh, that you describe. And I think Democrats have really been awfully slow in realizing the dangers that these state level Republican legislative moves to nullify elections uh, pose both to their own prospects, but more importantly, to the republic. Um, but, you know, what I am more concerned about in a way is um, that there's something very critical to the survival of a country that's been lost with the disappearance of this Colin Powell Republican Party that you're talking about. And that is a, a two-party system in which one party, the Democrats, does most of the proposing of ideas, but the Republican Party stands for uh, institutions and institutions that can be trusted to work most of the time. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things that Colin Powell brought to the Republican Party was uh, a kind of advocacy for affirmative action, because that was part of his own history. Um, he had done exemplary service in Vietnam, but he was not on the promotions list for eventual elevation to general ranks uh, at the end of the war. And, and that was largely because um, that promotions list was dominated by people with connections, largely through the service academies. And the story that I've heard uh, is that the secretary of the army under President Lyndon Johnson 
Stanley Rezor, basically said there have to be a few candidates of color in this list. And that was how Colin Powell got added to that list. And that was a perspective, you know, that he brought to the Republican Party, that the Republican Party is the dad party, the responsible party, maybe not the most exciting of political parties, but one that can be trusted to do the right thing, maintain American institutions, and be more inclusive as the country moves forward. And it's that party that I just don't see any prospect of resurrecting at this point, uh, whatever the success of these third party challenges to the Trumpian populism. I think that might well be gone, in which case America is going to have a very difficult time in its future. Well, Jeffrey Cabasovas, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And I've been speaking with Jeffrey Cabasovas, who's the director of political studies at the Niskanen Center in Washington, D.C., as well as the author of several books, including Rule and Ruin, The Downfall of Moderation and the Destruction of the Republican Party, from Eisenhower to the Tea Party. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the nakedly racist, outrageously greedy, and brazenly undemocratic redistricting maps just passed by the Republicans in the Texas legislature. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lydia Camarillo, who serves as the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. And she plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies for the SVREP nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns. And in September of 1999, President Clinton and Vice President Gore appointed Lydia to serve as the CEO of the 2000 Democratic National Convention. And prior to joining SVREP, Camarillo served as the National Director of the Leadership Development Program for the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lydia Camarillo. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So, Lydia, this uh, outrageous redistricting map that the Texas Republican legislature has drawn up flies in the face of the fact that 95% of the state of Texas's population growth in the last decade came from communities of color. But what they've done is essentially come up with maps that consolidate white power as the white population is shrinking. This is true, but as you know, Texas has a long history of finding ways to violate the Voting Rights Act, create unconstitutional redistricting maps every 10 years. We, we sued Southwest Voters uh, with other groups under the Texas Latino Redistricting Task Force sued Texas in 2011, and we just filed the lawsuit uh, October the 18th uh, against the four maps. This last time we did two maps. This time it's all four maps, the Congressional, the State Senate, the State House, and the Senate Board of Education. Well, Texas population is 39.8% white, 39.3% Hispanic, 11.8% black, and 5.4% Asian American. But under this, these new maps, 
that white people comprise a majority of eligible voters in more than 60% of districts on an average, while Hispanics are a majority in roughly 20% of districts, black residents a majority in just 3% of districts, and Asian Americans a majority in zero districts. That's what they've done. Can they get away with it? Well, we hope they don't get away with it. That's why we filed a lawsuit. The the lawsuit, let me, let me, let me go back just till before they close the session. The session has officially closed in Texas. Uh, it is part of the efforts that we have. We accomplished the cycle as well as the last cycle, which is to speak to the members. Unlike California, Texas has it, the redistricting process is handled through the redistricting process through the legislature, not through the commissions like California, the commission. But in Texas, the legislature was provided uh, be on behalf of the task force with four different maps, creating uh, four sets of different maps where Latinos could be Latino majority uh, members. That is to say, Texas grew by almost four million people this cycle. Two million of that is Latino. When you bring Latinos, Blacks, Asians, and other communities of color, it is over 95%. Yet, they were able to diminish and retrogress districts in all levels. For us at uh, South Dakota, as part of the task force, there's 10 groups that finally filed the lawsuit. We know that we were able to create a new district in Houston that's Latino majority, a new district in Dallas. Dallas and Houston are in Bear County, which is San Antonio, Texas, are the largest, the counties that grew the most. But we were able to demonstrate that. We were also able to create a state Senate seat in what is essentially overlaps, sort of, because the state Senate seat is about 100,000, 940,000 people larger than the congressional seat in what is called the I-35 corridor from San Antonio to Austin, which is where Doggett's current seat exists, to give you an idea for those of you that look at the map. And then we were able to create two new state house seats and fix those seats that were retrogressed. In the state house, the 19 was uh, a Senate seat was messed up. They they made it into a, a non-performing Latino seat where Latinos voters could not elect a candidate of their choice. They did the same thing with the 23rd in the congressional district, which is this district from San Antonio to the Valley and El Paso, and it's one of the largest districts. And they did that in the House seat. They did that also with the Senate uh, Board of Education. There's one seat that they retrogressed, and we were able to create one seat. So based on that and the fact that we were able to create seats, that demonstrate that the growth allows for us to have new Latino majority seats as well as sustaining the gains that we have made at a level that is 50% or better so that it's protected by Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And the last thing that we always do, we did this in the last cycle, is we work to honor the districts that were already gained by the Black community and the Asian community. Uh, in the original uh, map that was submitted by Texas, they paired uh, Sheila Jackson uh, Lee and uh, Al Green against each other. They were able to fix that, but we are able, in our map that we submitted, we were able to fix that plus create a new Latino seat in Houston and in Dallas. So that's what we're going to be fighting for. It's not the first time, the last cycle. The litigation lasted eight years. The legal representative for for the task force then 
and it is today is Maldives, Nina Perales, uh, who has been brilliantly uh, uh, looking at legally how we can fight this fight. In the last fight, we went before the United States Supreme Court, the San Antonio Federal Court finally decided on the maps that were moved, put forth from 2012 and then and then we were able to, people were able to have elections the states the state was able to have its elections with those maps we're not sure how this time things are going to go cuz we've got two things to be concerned with one is that while the maps that we submitted are protected by section 2 of the voting rights act we no longer have section 5 of the voting rights act as it was um, gutted, I guess, is the best word by um, the Supreme Court ruling in Shelby versus Holder. And second, uh, this time we have a Supreme Court before us that is six to three. We believe that th- that the courts can be fair, and we hope they will be fair. But this is part of uh, our challenges this cycle is to make sure that um, Latinos have a voice, that they're represented, that not only do we create districts where they can elect Canada of their choice, but it also has implications to resources for over the next 10 years. Well, if this map goes through, the number of safe GOP seats in Texas would double from these new congressional maps, from 11 to 22, and the number of competitive districts would fall from 12 to just one. So, I mean, this is beyond greedy this is outrageous it yeah it is it is uh outrageous it's frustrating and it violates section two of the voting rights act it violates uh the the constitution it's unconstitutional the last time the courts did say that the state did it with intent to dilute and with malice uh we're, we're sure that that's what the courts will ultimately say because as you said they're uh, they're being greedy. Uh, the state is, as you mentioned very accurately, almost equal whites and, Lati- and Latinos in the state. And frankly, we think it's actually higher. And by next year, for sure, will be higher. And we're saying it's, we think it's higher that the Latino community is actually a greater number and the largest group in Texas. But because of the undercount, we can't prove that today. But we're certain that by, the ne- by next year this time, that'll be the case. Well, just to give one example, the Texas's 24th congressional district, the new maps would turn a district that voted for Joe Biden by five points into one that would have voted for Donald Trump by 12 points. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I know that it's often stated that the purpose of elections is for voters to choose their candidates, but with gerrymandering, the opposite happens where candidates choose their voters. And this is about as stark an example as you could possibly have, right? I mean, it's shameless. It, it, it's, it's shameless. It's, um, it's, it's frustrating. It's angering. It's, but it's not surprising. The sad thing about Texas is that it's not surprising. This cycle... Texas passed some of the most ridiculous laws, including SB1, which violates um, uh, is really an attempt to suppress the vote of the black and Latino community. And it includes partisans. Partisans can now walk into a precinct and stare us in the eye and look to see how we're voting and intimidate people. They can even be dressed as police officers, as INS, as anything that they choose to. 
So no, it is, it is very, very bad. And it's, um, it, it's important for us to remember that this is not the first fight, nor will it be the last uh, in states like Texas, where they're uh, looking for ways to, to keep their power. And they're using the partisan um, issue that they can, they can draw lines to protect uh, their, their, their power. And let's not forget that uh, when uh, districts are drawn by legislatures, their number one um, goal is to increase their, their power and, and sustain what they have gained. And that's exactly what they have done. Now, it is the job and the responsibility of groups like ours to continue to do a good fight for the communities. And we're hoping and sure that the courts will do the right thing and, and make sure that they sustain and uphold the law. And if the law survives this fight, it means that we will be able to create the two districts that we created that are Latino majority seats. In addition to this, the nine that we already have, it would move to 11 Latino majority seats on the congressional side. That's what we're looking for. The other thing that I think we need to do is, I think we've all said this as organizers, we continue to register people to vote. We continue to turn them out to vote. We continue to remind them that what's at stake is their future and we can't sit idly. So the 2022 the 2022 elections are just as important as, as were the 2020 elections, and perhaps even more so because of what you just stated, that the state of Texas and other states like Texas, and certainly Texas, are attempting to suppress the vote, to be greedy, and sustain their power uh, because they know that any moment now, had we had the census count sustained and maintained correctly, the majority of, of the Texans in Texas would be Latino. But since that didn't happen, we can assure you that by next year, we will be the majority. Latinos will be the majority in Texas. So given the fact that the Republicans have made it clear that they would rather cheat than compete, they just don't want to come up with a, a better message and better candidates. They just want to suppress the votes of minority voters in this growing minority constituency that you're talking about. Does that mean, is Texas therefore as racist as these Republican legislators appear to be? Is it that bad? You know, uh, in our business, when you call somebody racist, those are fighting words. But everything that we know is exactly that. It is a race issue. It is a, a concern of ours that the legislators are creating maps that are, in fact, based on race and are not colorblind, as they have said. And, and some of us believe that it can be, and it is, racism at, at its very best. Um, I think that Texas uh, legislators, the ones that are in control right now, that are the Republicans, that are drawing their lines. They are being greedy. They are violating the Voting Rights Act and they are working to sustain their power for the next 10 years. Because as you know, these districts are going to stand if they survive the court uh, lawsuit, the lawsuit ours, which we believe there'll be other lawsuits. But if they survive our lawsuit, it means that they stand for the next 10 years. 10 years is a very long time. The changes continue. 
Latinos continue to grow, they continue to be part of the process, and they continue to be uh, to see discrimination and the dilution of the vote. It feels like the 1960s when we saw signs that said, no dogs, no blacks, no Mexicans. That's what it feels like today in Texas. Well, Lydia Camarillo, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Have a beautiful day. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Lydia Camarillo, who serves as the president of the Southwest Voter Registration Education Project, a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization based out of San Antonio, Texas. She plays a key role in developing the tactical strategies for the SVREP, nonpartisan voter registration, voter education, and get out the vote campaigns. And in September of 1999, President Clinton and Vice President Gore appointed Lydia to serve as the CEO of the 2000. Democratic National Convention, and prior to joining SVREP, Camarillo served as the National Director of the Leadership Development Program for the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into whether Democratic politicians in Washington have the survival instinct to recognize that the Republicans don't just want to beat them in future elections, they want to drive them into extinction. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Aaron Sherb, who is a former congressional staffer and currently the Director of Legislative Affairs at Common Cause, where he helps craft and gain support for various good governance proposals related to campaign finance reform, voting rights, redistricting reform, and ethics and lobbying reform. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aaron Sherb. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And tomorrow, the Senate uh, Chuck Schumer has scheduled a vote on the Freedom to Vote Act, which is put forth by Joe Manchin. Uh, nobody expects it to get over the 60-vote filibuster threshold, which would require 10 Republicans. And at this point, doesn't appear to, that they have even one Republican. So do you think you're in Washington, and I'm out here in la-la land, so you have to tell me, Aaron, whether... There, that the people on the Hill, the Democrats, get it, that there's this freight train heading towards them of voter suppression. And if they don't stop what's happening now at many levels of suppression, whether it's gerrymandering, voting suppression, the ability for these important key legislatures controlled by Republicans to certify and count the votes, and if they don't like them, they can overturn them, and all of this activity that people like Bannon are behind at the precinct level, where traditionally neutral poll workers are being driven out of their jobs uh, and being replaced by these partisan zealots. So the freight train's coming at them. You're there in Washington. Do they get it? Look, the Freedom to Vote Act is a modified version of the for the People Act, which uh, you know, all 50 Senate Democrats voted to advance twice uh, earlier this this summer, and which all Senate Republicans uh, blocked, you know, failed to to vote to advance um, this summer as well. And so, yeah, you know, I think yeah, you know, we're 
not holding out hope. We're not holding our breath for any Senate Republicans to vote for uh, for advancing just to begin a, a public debate on the on the bill tomorrow. And so then it really becomes a um, a fight, a kind of an internal family discussion in the Senate Democratic Caucus about about how to get this done, about how to get around Senator McConnell and Senate Republicans continued blockade using the procedural loophole called the filibuster to protect our freedom to vote. Because really our, our freedom to vote, our ability to have our, our voices heard and votes counted is, is more important than any arcane Senate procedural rule. But to the larger point, though, is that are people like Joe Biden, for example, he's been there forever on the Hill, uh, and he was there in a different era when Republicans and Democrats on the Senate were friends. And they, you know, nowadays, they don't even ride the same elevators anymore. They don't even talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, well, we're hoping and thinking and urging the, the White House to somewhat be evolving on uh, on its position. And, uh, you know, just wanted to flag some comments from White House Press Secretary from just a little bit ago. And I'll quote this. She says, if Republicans cannot come forward and stop standing in the way, if they can't support strengthening, protecting the fundamental right to vote, then Democrats are going to have to determine an alternative path forward. So that, you know, I think you know, the, the White House over the last, you know, four, six, eight weeks really seems to get it that much more that, uh, you know, how important the freedom to vote is, along with the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, which I think will also come up for a procedural vote in the Senate pretty soon. Um, so I think, you know, the White House is hopefully evolving, as are other several Senate Democrats who've been reluctant to do what it takes to get both these bills across the finish line. Well, you're quoted in an article, Aaron Sherb, in the Washington Post, that mentions that the White House has been having these video conferences with voting rights activists, etc., across the country, and that a Biden aide told these concerned Democrats that the Democrats could simply out-organize the Republicans. And that has led to a lot of skepticism and, in fact, frustration on the part of voting rights advocates across the country. That still stands, or are you saying now that the White House is getting the message? Well, look, I, I think that that quote was said, uh, yeah, we were not part of that meeting, but that quote was said in a meeting this summer with some voting rights activists and, and groups. And so I think at the time, the White House didn't fully have a uh, kind of a full perspective on all the anger and frustration and all the marching and all the rallies and events that so many you know, thousands and if not millions of Americans in, in states around the country from Texas to Georgia to Iowa to Montana, you know, 19 states now um, passed 33 voter suppression laws this year. So I think the White House, I think maybe then didn't fully understand, have the full picture, but now, you know, coupled with additional states passing voter suppression laws, you know, coupled with other states you know, now passing gerrymandered maps, you know, we just saw Texas uh, legislature pass the congressional maps last night, very gerrymandered, you know, taking away the, the voices of especially black and brown Americans. You know, I think the White House you know, now gets it much more so than they did you know, four, six, eight weeks ago when you know, somebody made that comment during a meeting. So I think they've, you know, they're certainly continuing to evolve and there's a lot that they're doing privately out of the public view that uh, I think there shows that they're getting it more. So tomorrow, when the Senate takes up the Joe Manchin Freedom to Vote Act, which it's almost predetermined that Republicans won't support it. So it seems like it's an exercise to let Manchin and Cinema know that this whole idea of clinging to the filibuster is suicidal. Do you think either of those two get that? 
You know, it, it's hard to tell exactly what their calculus is here, but I think you know, Senator Manchin has done an extremely admirable job of reaching out to to many of his Senate Republican colleagues to find areas of compromise, to find areas of agreement on, on voting rights issues, on getting big money out of politics, and stopping gerrymandering. So yeah, we'll have to see what yields from those any of those conversations. I'm a Cubs fan, so I'm an eternal optimist, but uh, yeah, it, it seems pretty unlikely that he's going to be successful and able to get any of these, any of his Senate Republican colleagues to just even begin an open debate on, on the bill. But that's the thing, they're not, Senate Republicans wouldn't even have to support the, the bill itself, but just to have an underlying, you know, just to have a de- public debate on the bill seems so basic that if Republicans are actually for voting rights, then they, what, what, what do they have to fear about having a free and open debate about the bill? Well, what do you think is going on now with Schumer and the strategy in the Senate? Because I've heard reports that Schumer doesn't want to push Manchin too hard on the filibuster over voting rights because he needs him on the big infrastructure bill. Is that something that you're hearing as well? You know, I think it's a somewhat of a delicate balance. You know, as we know, there's zero margin of error in the Senate. And so... You know, Senator Manchin has been with Dem- Senate Democrats on all the other big votes where, where he's been needed uh, in the past, anywhere from impeachment to you know, opposing the Trump tax plan. So, you know, I think hopefully he'll he'll get there in the end and do whatever it takes to get the, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, you know, through the Senate and to President Biden's desk. And, you know, there are thousands of West Virginians who have who've contacted Senator Manchin to, to urge him to do whatever it takes, you know, and, Arizona as well with Senator Sinema. There are you know, tens of thousands of Arizonans who have who've contacted her office and who are urging her to, uh, to also do whatever it takes to protect their freedom to vote and to make sure that their voices can continue to be heard. Well, apparently both President Biden and Vice President Harris have been on the phones trying to get support for this bill. So what do you think is the next step, though, assuming that it goes nowhere tomorrow? which is a pretty safe assumption, then will there be a debate or will there be within the caucus a debate about doing a carve-out? I mean, if if McConnell can have a carve-out for putting these conservative judges on the courts, I don't see why the Democrats couldn't have a carve-out on the most important issue that we have, which is the right to vote. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we're not prescriptive in, in how it gets it how it gets done. It just you know there has to be a, a family discussion in the Senate Democratic Caucus about protecting the you know most sacred right to vote. Yeah, you know, I think there's some certainly some parallels to the 2013 uh, Senate rules fight when uh, the you know, then Majority Leader Reid ultimately moved his caucus along you know to help change the Senate rules then because Senate Republicans were again you know blocking any and all nominees that pre- then President Obama was trying to get confirmed and so you know that took several months of pressure to build up over time and I think you know we're seeing this you know similar pattern again where there were a lot of folks who were reluctant to change update the Senate rules then and I think you know it's a much smaller kind of pool of folks who were reluctant to do that this time. So I think it's just, you know, just a couple of folks this time. So I think there's, yeah, there's some, certainly some parallels to the 2013 uh, Senate rules fight to this time. Well, Hillary Clinton, of course, um, who ran and lost in 2016, she's now joining in this kind of chorus of concern, saying, 
quote, I fear Democrats still aren't taking this threat sufficiently seriously. So do you think her voice is resonating? Yeah, certainly, you know, she has a valuable perspective of what's happening around the country as more and more states are trying to pass anti-election sabotage uh, bills, you know, to basically overturn free and fair elections, to remove nonpartisan elections officials because they won't, you know, they won't do a sham ballot review or they won't, you know, give in to uh, former President Trump's big lie or they, um, you know, for various other reasons. And so I think, you know, Secretary Clinton, you know, certainly has a, a you know very broad perspective on on this, and I think she she certainly studies history and can see how dangerous this this is and the path that we're going down. And more and more states are going to be doing this. You know, this is not just about 2020. This is about overturning free and fair elections in 2022 and 2024 and beyond. So this, you know, the Freedom to Vote Act, is really the the best chance to try to stop this where it is and, you know, kind of bolster and try to strengthen the integrity of our, of our democracy and protect our freedom to vote while we, while we have this, this chance. Well, this is what's going on in terms of the freight train coming down the tracks at breakneck speed, uh, which could lead to the end of American democracy and a one-party state like we have, for example, in Oban's Hungary. And, of course, we've had Tucker Carlson there for a whole week, cozying up to the dictator, and uh, he has perfected electoral autocracy. And it seems like the Republican Party is totally shameless about wanting to go ahead and cheat rather than compete. But the Brennan Center, for example, its most recent bad news in on this front, as of the end of September, more than 425 bills with provisions that restrict voting access have been introduced in 49 states, and 19 states have already enacted 33 laws making it harder for Americans to vote. That's the landscape that the Democrats are facing, and, and it's getting worse, isn't it? Yeah, and look, this isn't, you know, this is more than just, this isn't Republicans versus Democrats. Uh, these policies that are in the Freedom to Vote Act are extremely popular policies, you know, automatic voter registration, same-day voter registration, online voter registration, you know, at least two weeks of early voting. You know, these are policies that are supported by broad swaths of Democratic, Republican, independent voters. And in fact, you know, many states have actually passed these policies already, you know, red, blue, and purple states. So it's really only Republican elected officials who are opposed to them. You know, the, the public, the American public largely gets it and supports these, but it's just, you know, it's a, uh, you know, it's a narrow subset of Republican elected officials who are trying to, you know, kind of thwart the, the will of the American people and to ignore the, the will of voters and, you know, undermining by undermining free and fair elections. And so that's, that's what's really dangerous because I think many voters don't, unfortunately don't realize what's, what's going on here. Now in the mansion bill, which by the way, Stacey Abrams says is a good bill, I understand that one of the proposals is to make election days a public holiday. Is that still in there? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. So people, you know, many people do not have time off from work. And so that would make sure that that they have time off, hopefully on, on election day to, to go vote, to have their go have their voices heard. Also, it, it establishes vote by mail for people who choose to, to vote that way. But it, yes, it would also make election day a holiday as well. And would the states honor that? Uh, you know, for 
you know, certainly so this would just apply to federal elections. And so certainly they would they would have to for federal elections or you know, would, would face potential lawsuits or other mm-hmm. you know, legal actions if, if they didn't. Well, I mean, the, a lot of states didn't didn't want to honor the Martin Luther King Day, but they eventually did. But they would have to automatically allow everybody to take a day off on voting day for federal elections. Yes, yeah, if the Freedom to Vote Act uh, passes, then yes, that would create a holiday on election day, yes. So it's got to be all hands on deck, right? Yeah, and there, you know, look, there's a massive movement around the country to, to get the Freedom to Vote Act done. I mean, there are massive coalition called the Declaration for American Democracy that Common Cause has a, a key role in, in helping to lead. You know, there are organizations from the environmental community, you know, faith community, you know, labor, civil rights, social justice, faith, reproductive rights, student groups, veterans groups, you name it. And, you know, that, that constituency, you know, there's a, a group um, in support of the Freedom to Vote Act. So it's, you know, we've, it's an unprecedented movement that, that's come together to coalesce behind uh, the Freedom to Vote Act. And so I think you know, we've got a narrow window to get it done here these next you know, four or six weeks. Um, and so I think millions of Americans have already contacted their, their senders to urge them to, to get it done. So I think we're, we're coming to a kind of a point, you know, this, this final act here in these next couple of weeks. So we need uh, everybody to contact their senders and urge them to do whatever it takes to get this bill across the finish line. Well, Aaron Sheb, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me in. And again, I've been speaking with Aaron Sherb, who's a former congressional staffer and currently the Director of Legislative Affairs at Common Cause, where he helps craft and gain support for various good governance proposals related to campaign finance reform, voting rights, redistricting reform, and ethics and lobbying reform. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared